It's another episode of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson as we're coming up to the halfway point of Dante's Purgatorio. We're at Canto 15, leaving one level of the mountain and discovering what it's like on the next level. So, two different sins to get involved with here. Or rather, not to get involved with, but of course, to work at cleansing out of ourselves. We read Dante, the 14th century poet, writing about a fictional Dante journeying in the afterlife in the year 1300, and, if we're adept, we watch as we also make this journey and, here in Purgatory, try to turn away from our own self-centered habits, intending to live a healthier life of community with others. We, we left Dante and Virgil at the end of the last canto still walking around the terrace devoted to envy. Canto 15 opens with another elaborate time check, basically telling us that it's mid-afternoon, three hours until sunset, the, the time of Vespers. Dante and Virgil have been walking anti-clockwise around the mountain and are now walking westward with the sun shining right in their faces. The sunlight is very bright, but something even brighter suddenly blinds Dante and he has to put his hand up to his forehead to shade his eyes. But that doesn't do much good, since the light, shining also onto the ground, is reflected back up at Dante and still gets in his eyes. The only thing to do is turn away and, and turn to Virgil for an explanation of that light, which seems to be coming ever closer. Oh, well, you're still being blinded by the presence of heavenly bodies, he says. That's to be expected, but soon you'll be in better conditions so that instead of being pained by the light, you'll find it delightful, as you were made to do. That light is an angel showing us the way to climb up, inviting us to go forward. And I think it now appears that instead of that light approaching them, they are approaching the light, and as they get closer to the angel, the angel speaks. Here's your path, up a stairway much less arduous than the previous ones. And so they start climbing, and as had happened as they left the Terrace of Pride, they hear a voice singing one of the Beatitudes, this time Beati Misericordes, Blessed are the Merciful, with the added line, Rejoice, you have conquered this. Now, as they climb up the staircase, Dante doesn't want to waste time. Notice it's Dante now who's concerned about wasting time. And he asks for an explanation of what Guido del Duca meant when he reproached us living people for wanting to possess things that can't be shared. Virgil's explanation sets up a distinction between things on earth that cannot be shared without diminishing them and things of heaven that grow larger when they're shared. I'll discuss this further in a minute, but for Dante, Virgil's words have left him even more hungry for clarification. How can something that is given out to a lot of people become more than if it were possessed by just a few? Virgil's reply isn't easy to grasp, but his basic point concerns the reflective way love operates. The highest good, up in heavens, sends out love towards everything that is lovable, and that love makes the thing even more lovable. So that the more people exchange compassion and other forms of love, the more compassion and love is reflected and increased. Is this clear? If it's not quite clear yet, Virgil tells Dante, when he meets Beatrice later on, she will explain this to his complete satisfaction. 
along with every other doubt Dante may have. Meanwhile, Dante's chief concern is to get those five remaining peas wiped off through repentant suffering. Five peas? That's a surprise. The, la the last we heard, there were six. But obviously, perhaps when the angel light blinded him, th then that pea of envy was erased. But nothing is mentioned of this. By now they have come to the top of the staircase and find themselves in the next region. They start walking along, but almost immediately Dante's attention is drawn to some inner visions. First he sees crowds outside the temple in Jerusalem, and at the door a mother saying to her son, Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been frantically looking everywhere for you. When she stops speaking, the vision dissolves, and another one appears. Dante can see another woman, her eyes wet with angry tears, coming to speak to her husband, Pisistratus. If you're the ruler of this city, then do something about this outrage and destroy that man who dared to embrace our daughter in public. But Pisistratus, ruler of Athens, replies meekly, If we punish someone who is showing affection, what are we going to do to people who are trying to harm us? And then a third vision arises. It's like Dante's in some sort of private cinema. And, and here is a violent scene of angry people stoning a young man to death, urging themselves on with the chant, Kill! Kill! But the young man, now stricken down and lying on the ground, just about to breathe his last, looks up to heaven and asks for forgiveness for those who are killing him. And then the visions cease, and Dante returns to what, what we might call the real world. He must have been walking all over the place while his mind was intent on those visions, because Virgil says, hey, What's the matter with you? You're walking like a drunk person or a sleepwalker. No, none of that, Dante replies. I'll tell you what I just experienced. No, that's okay, Virgil says. No need to tell me. Your face tells me everything I need to know. I understand what's happened. Don't worry. Those visions were to spur you on to opening your heart to divine peace. My remark wasn't meant for you to answer. When I asked what's the matter, it, it was a rhetorical question, just meant to chivy you along a little faster now. Okay, that's settled. And they keep walking into the bright sunlight in the west, but they begin to notice a dark cloud of smoke coming towards them. And as it envelops them, no way to avoid this, it takes away first their sight and then the pure air. On that suspenseful detail, the canto ends. This is a canto that begins on one terrace and ends on another. And it begins with the bright sunlight and the even brighter angel of mercy, but ends in that dark enveloping cloud, obscuring all light. In between comes the ascent up the staircase, with the discussion about the abundance of caritas, and then, almost immediately on the new level, those three visions, abstracting Dante with examples of meekness or a refusal to be trapped into anger. The canto opens with another reminder that time is passing. It's midnight here in Italy where Dante is writing and where, presumably, his readers are located. And in the world of the story, here in Purgatory, it's the same amount of time before sunset as it is three hours after sunrise. That is to say, it's three hours before sunset. An easy equation once we figure it out. 
But then we have to spend a minute working out why Dante expresses the time in such a fashion. One reason might be to set up a contrast between the midnight darkness in Italy, a land so full of sin and corruption, and the almost blinding sunlight on Mount Purgatory, where that sin and corruption is being washed away. The three hours before sunset is a kind of mirror of the three hours after sunrise. Dante tells the time here as a reflection of earlier time. The three hours before sunset reflect, or are a kind of mirror image, of the three hours after sunrise. Do we think back to what was happening at that previous three hours after sunrise, Dante's first experience of suffering in purgatory, as he examined those carvings on the wall of pride? He's come a long way, and the day is wearing on, but there is still much more to do. It's as though you don't measure time here by a linear progression of moments, but through connections between time before and time after, your present state a reflection of how you have worked on yourself earlier on. One more point about this. Dante describes the sun's movements through the sky as being like a child at play. One minute you see the kid outside the kitchen door, the next minute the kid's over there climbing the tree or running in all of a sudden from the front door. And <laughs> one minute you see the sun rising up in the east, and then you lose the sun while you're on the other side of the mountain, and then you move further around towards the west, and look, there's the sun over there now. For all the pain and suffering going on here in Purgatory, up above there is lightness and joyful play. At the end of the last canto, Virgil had admonished us to keep our eyes fixed above, and he'll continue that theme in this canto with our need to aim for the goals above, not below on earth. And here, at the start of the canto, is our reminder that with our eyes fixed there, we will be joyful and active as a child at play. We are deflected, though, from these thoughts of a playful sunlight by an even brighter light. This angel's brightness seems more intense than the previous angel's. Dante thinks that the angel is coming towards him, as the angel did last time, but I think he discovers that the angel is standing there waiting for him. The light grew brighter because Dante was walking towards him. And the theme of reflection continues here, with the discussion of the way the angel's brightness is reflected off the ground up into Dante's eyes. Let's, let's think for a second about the relationship of reflection to the sin of envy, which is the theme on this level. Isn't it true that envious people look at others as reflections of themselves, or wished-for reflections of themselves? Just as Dante cannot look directly at the angel but receives a reflected image, so the envious person does not look at someone else directly to see that person as that person actually is, but sees the other only as a reflection. I'm miserable, and I see you happy. I want you to be miserable like me, a reflection or projection of my sadness. Reflect me, I am implicitly saying. Or if you have something I want, I do not see you, but only you as possessor of something I want reflected back to me. But for all these complications, this angel of Caritas enacts the very virtue he stands for. His words are simple and kind and direct. Here's the place you're looking for. Climb up this way and you'll find it much easier this time. 
Dante still does not clearly identify who is singing the Beatitude, but it's likely it's the angel. At least it comes from someone back on the terrace of envy. Beati misericordes, that is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, part of Jesus' great poem known as the Sermon on the Mount. Mercy, another aspect of caritas, the virtue of looking beneath someone's actions or possessions, the very thing that envious people cannot bring themselves to do, and mercy, seeing the actual person there, to whom we reach out with compassion. And the compassion we send out to that person comes back to us in that person's compassionate response to our compassion. Thus, the merciful obtain mercy in return. It's not a transaction in which God looks down on us and sees us being merciful and then decides that we've been so good he'll reward us with a dose of mercy from him. No, not a transaction, but an exchange, measure for measure. And this leads to the distinction Virgil makes between earthly things that cannot be shared without diminishing them and heavenly things that grow larger when they are shared. You have an apple and I envy you. I want the apple. We cannot both have the apple since it's just an earthly object of desire. And if I have the apple, then the apple has diminished at least for you, or vice versa. Or perhaps if, if you're generous and I'm willing we can share the apple. But even then, there's only so much of the apple either of us can have. The more you have, the less I have. We each have less than a whole apple. But with heavenly things, it's different. We're not talking here of objects, but, well, I suppose of feelings. Let's be more specific. If I am envious because you are enjoying a quiet time relaxing in the garden, and for some reason I can't, maybe I have to work, maybe I live in a place with no garden, then in my envy I want to deprive you of your good time, maybe by creating some emergency in the house that will make you get out of the chair and come in to deal with it, or by making you feel guilty about relaxing when there are people suffering in the world. I want to take away your enjoyment, and insofar as I've disturbed your relaxation, I have succeeded in diminishing what you had. But if, instead of envy, I were motivated by caritas, love for you, I would see you out there in the garden and be glad that you're having the chance to relax and enjoy yourself. Your well-being is a heavenly thing, and so I would be happy because you were happy, and thus your possession, that happiness, would be enlarged, not diminished because now we're both happy. And here's that principle of reflection again. Because you, in turn, are charitable, let's assume you are, you smile and perhaps invite me out to join you or give me your wishes that I too could enjoy myself when I get the chance. And these good wishes enlarge my own pleasure. And so, as Virgil goes on to explain, the more people there are showing love, the more love is being exchanged, and thus love grows even greater. Has that made it any clearer? Okay, another illustration. Let's go back to that example of giving money to a beggar that we used a few cantos ago. There's the homeless man sitting against the wall as I walk past. If I'm envious, I'm glad he's in such bad shape. It makes me feel better. It confirms my misguided sense that I am better than he is because I have a home, 
a good coat, a full belly, and some money in my pocket. So I console whatever conscience may be clamoring within me with the excuse that they only spend it on drink. And now I have that pound coin in my pocket, and he doesn't. The pound remains the same, and he remains deprived. Or maybe I toss him a coin, probably only five or ten pence, toss it with resentment and envious spite that he'll be disappointed with that small coin. Serve him right. If he's going to bother me with his begging, he'll have to be content with what I give him. Now the beggar has the five or ten pence, but I don't. It's diminished for me. We can't both have the money. It doesn't work like that, which was Guido del Duca's point. But if I have charity, caritas, compassion, I look below his miserable condition and see that man as a fellow human being who is suffering, and I give him a pound coin. No, let's, let's be generous in our example. I slip him a five-pound note. Yes, I am poorer by five pounds now, but that's only on the earthly level. My compassion for the man has given him more than five pounds. It's shown him that someone cares. It has, unless he's bitter and envious, it has enlarged his own compassion with gratitude. We exchange glances and smiles and maybe a few words, and now, as I walk away, we are both happier than we'd been before. My compassion became reflected in him, and then his in me, and maybe back and forth some more if I have the time to linger. And that's how sharing does not diminish anything, but enlarges the good qualities. That discussion over, Dante arrives at the new level, but he doesn't yet know exactly what sin is being cleansed here. We, however, with the notes in our book, can identify it as wrath or anger. And the visions Dante is given are the spurs or whips that show models of how the opposite of wrath behaves, the opposite of wrath being meekness. As usual, we first have an example from Mary. The Gansamishpucha, the whole family, have gone up to Jerusalem for the festival, and then are leaving to go home. And a little ways on the journey, Mary says to Joseph, this is hypothetical, Have you seen Jesus today? I don't think I've seen him since we all left the city. But Joseph's not seen him, nor has anyone else in the party. Could it be that he was left behind in Jerusalem? Can, can you picture the panic in the parents? Today, the kid would have his own mobile phone and they could get in contact, text me and tell me where I can find you. But not then. So Mary and Joseph rush back to Jerusalem, never an easy thing, even in the best of times, and search all over the city. Finally, hearing rumors of some young boys saying amazing things to the elders in the temple, who else could this be than Jesus, Mary goes to that holy place where she finds Jesus. Okay, this is the test. What would you do? Isn't this, isn't, isn't this what ears were made for? For the mother to grab the kid by the ear and drag him out, yelling at him, and maybe with the other hand landing a smack on the backside every now and then, running through a list of the punishments he's going to get when he gets home, and you just wait to see what your father's going to say to you. That's the response of the person given over to anger, the person whose anger is ready to spring out whenever circumstances don't go the way you want them to. 
Remember that in the Inferno, the discussion of changes in life circumstances, that is, Dame Fortune, comes right before they arrive at the Stygian marsh containing the souls damned for their anger. Anger and events not going the way we want them to go hand in hand. So it makes perfect sense for the mother to be angry at the son who caused them so much trouble. Mary does not give in to anger, of course, and her meek, gentle words just remind Jesus that he has worried his parents and caused them the added pain of searching for him. She just states the facts, no reproaches, no judgments. She gives him the respect of letting him judge the situation now that he sees more of the consequences of his actions. Then comes the example from classical culture. Pisistratus was a tyrant in Athens. That means a ruler with all authority in his hands. But Pisistratus was that rare example of a benign tyrant, a just man, and as is relevant here, a meek man. Meek, by the way, doesn't mean someone is a walkover. It means someone is willing to put aside self-will and take another point of view into consideration. That's quite different from just letting someone else's self-will take over, and it's entirely different from someone who just springs to an angry response to what is going on. Dante is taking up an old story about a suitor for Pisistratus' daughter, whom the parents disapproved of, but who was so overcome for love of their daughter that he couldn't resist embracing her in public one day. The mother came rushing in to Pisistratus, demanding that he do something about that outrage to their daughter. There is the angry response. She has tears in her eyes, reminding us perhaps of Filippo Argenti in the circle of anger in the Inferno, who equates anger with weeping when he identifies himself not as an angry person but as someone who weeps. So she comes in with tearful anger, demanding that this ruler of Athens do something to punish that impudent man who embraced their daughter. And here's Pisistratus' meek response. If we punish someone who is showing affection, what are we going to do to people who are trying to harm us? No anger, viewing the larger perspective, even though perhaps he disapproved of that embrace as much as his wife did. If your ruler was a man like that, you wouldn't mind if he was also a tyrant, would you? The, the final example is from the stoning of Stephen. Just as we'd first seen the anger of Pisistratus' wife, so here we first see the anger of the crowd gathered outside the city walls to kill Stephen for blasphemy by hurling stones at him until he died. They're screaming, kill, kill, though the Italian is not exactly clear whether they're shouting this to each other or just to themselves. In any case, it reminds us that anger always needs something more to keep it stoked and keep its fires burning. And the flames of angry hatred stoked in this mob are dangerous, loud, aggressive, unstoppable. But Stephen shows the meek response. That is, the refusal to answer their anger with his own anger or with just giving up. He's dying, but as we're told in the account from the Book of Acts, he keeps his eyes on heaven and asks for God to forgive these people who are out to kill him. Like the charitable person, he's able to look beyond their destructive actions to their personhood. He takes on the previous level's virtue of merciful compassion, but also, in his meekness, he looks beyond his own situation to those heavenly goods Virgil had been speaking of earlier in the canto. 
he could have just put on a martyr's face and, and tried to make them feel guilty for what they're doing, somehow aiming to make them feel bad, or at least sorry. But, but he doesn't do that. He sees them in the wider context of divine love and, and asks God to pardon them. When Dante comes around again after these visions, Virgil makes his comment about, what's the matter, Dante, you walking around like you're asleep or drunk? Dante is willing to explain the visions, but Virgil says he knows. Now, there's quite a bit of commentary about just how much Virgil does know. I'm interested, though, in his next statement. He had asked, what's the matter, not because he needed to know, but in order to coax Dante to pick up the pace. This is what we call a rhetorical question, a question asked not to get an answer, but to elicit some response in the person being addressed. When your mother says, how many times did I ask you to clean up your room, she's not looking for an answer. She is nagging you to get upstairs and do it. Virgil has often had to tell Dante to walk faster, but why does he do it here with a rhetorical question? Is it an example of his meekness? not wanting to make Dante feel bad about lagging behind, not wanting to be too forceful towards a man who has just had a series of divine visions and must be feeling a little woozy, or perhaps not wanting to embarrass Dante by pointing out how funny he looked walking all over the place like that. Or, let's admit it, perhaps it's just a passive-aggressive move on Virgil's part, who is perhaps a little resentful, angry, that Dante was given these visions that he wasn't allowed to see as well. Well, we can't resolve these options. They walk on into the setting sunlight until that dark smoke comes over them, shutting out all light. It's a sudden and unexpected turn of events and offers us, I think, the, I think, the most suspenseful ending of any of the cantos, leaving us, we could say, in the dark about what's going on. And it's a kind of false darkness, a darkness in which they can still move as compared to the nighttime darkness in Purgatory, which we know will be coming soon to end Dante's second day on Purgatory. And we will have to wait till the next canto to learn the meaning of this blinding smoke and what else this circle of wrath has to offer. See you then. <laughs>